Welcome to episode 145 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever talking about our passion for Linux. I am Ryan and with me today are the Ninja Warriors of Linux, Eric, Michael, and Zeb. Eric, thank you so much again for agreeing last second to jump on here and host with us. Uh, for those who want to know, Noah um, has um, a family event that, that happened where he has to go to the hospital and deliver a baby. So there you go. Wait, wait. Um, he's delivering the baby? He's delivering the baby. He's actually a doctor, <laughs> if people don't know. Um, oh. He's so good at Linux that they thought, why not let him see if he can deliver babies too? That makes know? sense. So we'll see totally, how it works. Totally. <laughs> so Eric, with that, what's new in your world this week? Absolutely nothing, Ryan. Well, oh, wait, no, something. that's completely that seems, that seems wrong. Yeah. Accurate. yeah, wait, wait. Uh, you're right. There is something. What is it? Uh, oh, DLN Extend. That's oh, there we go. Yeah, so Nate and I, Cubicle Nate, Nathan Wolf, uh, are doing a podcast. And we called it DLN Extend. And it's our opportunity to disagree with everything that you guys say on here and Whoa. that Jason says and that Noah says. And, you know, basically just be disagreeable and annoying. And uh, we just love that you gave us the opportunity. Now, uh, yeah, so we're going to take a look back at the week of DLN content. And there's so much to choose from. It's actually kind of tough to, <laughs> to narrow it down. But between Destination Linux and Linux for Everyone, Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek Channel, Zeb's Gaming Channel. Geez, am I forgetting anyone? There's just so much there to cover. And um, so that's really what we're doing. It's Nate and I getting together talking, having a conversation, and uh, recording it. We recorded last Thursday. The next episode that should be coming out in a day or two ended up with about four hours of raw audio. So, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we tend to get off on some tangents. And uh, we, don't worry. We are editing it down. We're going to try to hit about 30 minutes if we can because we don't want to – we know people are already uh, have a lot to listen to in, in a week's time. So, um, yeah, we're really excited. Well, I really love DLN Extend, the idea behind it. And you guys do at times, you know, add a different perspective in that maybe a lot of our viewers share and that people don't get a chance to really, or maybe they don't know how to express uh, the, the fact that they don't agree with us in a certain way, or maybe there's a deeper part of the story that we can't get into on the shows um, because we have limits too. Uh, on how long our shows can go. And we cover a lot of topics in Destination Linux, for instance, but we can't always deep dive into it. So I think DLN Extend has a perfect place in the family of podcasts on Destination Linux Network. And listening to it, you remind me very much of, you know, this podcast in that a lot of us would sit in a room and just chat about Linux for hours anyways. So why not record it? And people uh, really get to kind of feel and become a part of that conversation. So go check out DLN Extend. It's awesome. And thank you so much again for hosting Last Minute for us here. So, Michael, I kind of know how your week's been because you're in my home again. Apparently. Oh, dear. You said you changed the locks. I changed the locks. I we them. bombed the house with uh, Bug Killer, and still he shows up. So the only the only thing left is to just like enter the witness protection program and leave. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all you can do. Once he knows your address, he just shows up randomly. All the yeah, time. I, I, we we didn't plan this at all. I just showed up and was like, "Hey, what's up?" <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not it's not awkward at all. But actually, I um uh, I've been doing quite a bit. We've been 
uh, doing really a lot of work for DLN uh, while I've been here. So that's been really productive of being here as well. And also I've been working on a variety of different things. Um, like I have, um, I've been doing some different things for my, my main setup of setting up different machines. I now have a multiple, like I, I created a video about a year ago, roughly. I'm not really sure exactly how long it's been, but roughly about that time about a, um, a product called a flexi dock and it allows you to do multi booting things. So right now I have it set up so I can have a production machine that is, um, like guaranteed to have everything I need to do in order to do the shows. And also I have three other machines right now. Uh, one is a open source, tumbleweed. Another one is an endeavor. And then also a, um, a solace and the, and the production machines using Kubuntu. And so I'm, I can switch back and forth really easily now. And, uh, I like, cause I actually, you know, people who not watch the show or just, you know, getting used to it, there's, or getting new to the show. I've been, using the same distribution and the same setup for probably three or four years prior to having like switching out hardware and stuff. And now having the thing about you new know, testing out new systems, like I would occasionally test out the distributions and then that thing here and there, but I wouldn't actually use them for full time for a long time. So now I'm going to be trying to do like a semi distro hop while still keeping my uh, production machine ready to go. So that's going to be an interesting experience, and I'll be doing some videos about that. And uh, I'll, you know, update on the uh, future episodes of Destination Linux how that's been going. So, very nice. So Zeb, you've been missed, and but you were doing something very much Linux related, so we let it go. Where were you last week? Tell us about the experience. Yeah, well, last week I was in. Oak Camp in Manchester in the UK. Um, it was only a two-day event on the Saturday and the Sunday, but it's such a good crowd that gathers there that they all recommend you turn up on Friday to go to the Friday night pre-party. Then they have a Saturday party, and then they have a Sunday, well, we've all finished, so let's have another party. It's just absolutely crazy. But what's really good about it is very much like self it's not about the conversations and the presentations that are happening in the main rooms and the spin-off rooms it's about meeting people in the corridors in the main exhibition halls and having those chats where groups of people seem to gather around someone's got a laptop and he's got a problem with someone oh i know how to do this and i know how to do that or someone's trying to do something with a Raspberry Pi. And there was just so many little groups that you could sit and talk to. And even if you think, oh, wow, okay, I've just been doing this for five hours. Now I'm going to go and sit down and have a cup of coffee in the coffee shop. Within 30 seconds of you sitting down, someone will come over and go, hi, and you'll strike up another conversation. So very much like self in that regard. Um, and it was really, really good. But the thing I found really intriguing, and it worked well, they had a main auditorium where they had the presentations all lined up and these were the guys that were going to be speaking the guys and the girls that were going to be speaking for 45 minutes to an hour and then they had that uh, an idea that in the main one of the main halls there was a suggestion board people would say i can give a chat for this i can give a chat for that and we were able to vote on what we wanted to hear so yes. rather than trying to find something that you would be interested in you could pick something that you was interested mm. in as well and they were generally sort of like 25 minute snippets 
And then they had this really fantastic, fast five-minute topic that normally ended up in 10 minutes because you then had lots of questions to do afterwards. So that fluid um, ability to pick the show um, that you wanted to see was was absolutely fantastic. So overall, uh, a thoroughly good time was had by all. And meeting all of the people that I've talked to over the years in the Destination Linux Telegram channels um, and the Destination Linux Network Discord site, it was nice. It was really, really nice meeting them in person. So would I go again? 100%. Nice. nice. Yeah, that, that, there's actually a couple. I forgot there's a there's another kind of conference where it's like a, an unconference, I guess that's what they call it, where they do the whole that's- multiple where you cho- once you get there, you choose to be like, who, if you want to do one and people vote on it, that's, that's a really cool concept. And uh, yeah, I, I, I hope some more come to the U.S. do that so we can kind of like experience it as well. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty awesome. I've heard nothing but great things about uh, camp. And the thing that is amazing to me is that they ask if you can to donate to buy tickets. So they have an idea of who's coming, how many people are coming and like that. But if you just happen to show up, you can come right in and they, they, mm-hmm. they hold it. They hold it in the city center. Right. So people can literally just walk by and say, well, what's that? And, and yeah, stop it's, in, right? uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's off the beaten track slightly. It's about, okay. 10, it's about 10 minutes walk away from the main um, Piccadilly train station and probably five minutes walk away off the high street. So there's not uh, where it was situated in the pendulum hotel. There's not a lot of foot traffic. But in the past, they've held it in universities, which have mm-hmm. normally been m- more closer to city centres. So, yes, there would be some passerby foot traffic. But even people in the hotel would be coming down to, to go out and leave and someone would go, oh, computers, give us half our love. And they'd, they'd, <laughs> she wouldn't mm-hmm. see them again for another six hours as they, as they walked around all the rooms. And one of the, one of the things that I actually forgot to mention was there was a fantastic children's room where for six hours, they had them in there with not just raspberry pies, but a whole host of other things where they were building little remote control, um, like moon buggy type things and doing stuff on the computers. Uh, and there was one adorable little uh, girl on there. I think she was like 12 and she already had uh, about 18 raspberry pies at home. That's so doing- awesome doing various things nice. like she'd have one in her room for her temperature and her humidity and she'd have a little spy camera to find out when her parents were coming down the <laughs> corridor to have a look at her so she really went to town on it and it was and it was great to see all these kids at a very early age getting the opportunity to to interact with with linux and just technology in general it was marvelous that sounds amazing so ryan i've seen a couple of um your posts on um, telegram and stuff so you've obviously been doing some interesting stuff this week so spill the beans what have you been up to well we had a halloween party so nothing is scarier than michael being in your house so that's why we invited <laughs> him uh so michael joined us for a small halloween party that um, we threw and it was a lot of fun michael came out with two outfits mm-hmm. uh both inspired one was inspired by his last visit where we watched a terrible movie called in the grass in, in the, the tall grass. grass it's supposed to be yeah. a horror movie but a it's stephen king silly. movie and it's basically what you would think about getting lost in grass so michael made an outfit which i posted in our telegram group of 
basically his version of Dos Geek lost in tall grass, which I, I give him I give him some credit here for the creativity. That was quite good. Yeah. And uh, and then he had another outfit as well, which was an alien, one of the ugliest alien faces you could imagine. But it was also wearing a Dos Geek shirt. So, so I don't know what the deal is with the Dos Geek theme. I mean, I was both, you know. Well, okay, there's there's actually a couple reasons. One, uh, that uh, you being trapped in the tall grass just made it funny to me. And the the way I did that was like so ridiculous that it looked like some people like saw the comments like, are you busy at a Christmas tree? It's like, well, okay, here's the context. Um <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the the reason why the other costume had the same shirt on was because I didn't want to change and I was just too lazy to change. That way it was that just works. it was more it was more efficient. It's real okay. That's what it was. It was more efficient. That's why I did it. Uh, but well, we have, there's photos recommend. of both costumes on the, in the DL Telegram group. Yeah, I highly recommend people join that group, which by the way is blown up. Well over a thousand people now in the Telegram group. It's just a great place if you want to get to know people, hang out with other. Linux enthusiasts hang out with creators from across the DLN network, even mm-hmm. Eric and Nate and uh, everybody shows up there at some point to talk and, and hang out. So it's a really cool place to uh, check out. But beside that, I also, and I'm glad Noah's not here because he would really be uh, getting on to me for this, but uh, I ran into an issue with the Surface Go. And as you recall, I put Linux on the Surface Go. And I've been having a fantastic time with it. I've done some videos on it with Endeavor and Mate and using some different distros. But when I went to an Ubuntu distro, what was strange, and I don't know if it was Ubuntu or just switching distros, but I've seen other people actually posting the same issue on Reddit. Uh, it would not, after I went from Endeavor to Ubuntu Mate, I could not go to then Pop! OS. It would no longer recognize the USB, no matter what setting I put into the BIOS, it just wouldn't recognize it. And other people have experienced this as well. And apparently the only workaround, at least that I could find, is you literally have to put Windows 10 back on it, which it will recognize that. So it's probably something in, in their hardware that they have, some security thing or something. And at that point, once you reset it, then you can move on to a different distro. What I did is uh, I put Windows 10 back on it, and then I went and basically did a video of using it because I got the Surface Go and have never used it with Windows. So I did a whole video that I'll be releasing of my experience in Windows. And uh, just to kind of a sneak peek into it, it uses Windows 10S, which is fascinating how locked down this is. (laughs) And some of the stupid decisions that were made in Windows 10 S. So um, check out that video. And now, thankfully, the tablet's back on Pop! OS, uh, mm-hmm. which is running fabulous on it. But um, yeah, Windows 10, video on my channel coming soon. Well, I was just about to say, save it, because now you've got Michael in your home. He's obviously had an influence for you, and wow. you need to release that on April the 1st of wow. next year. <laughs> and let everybody know, idea, yeah. now gone, you've gone rogue, and you're now settling on Windows 10 and see how many people forfeit. Because even though we're admitting it now, come April next year, everyone would have completely forgot. You know so, what's funny about that, Zeb? I did a video after the 30 Days of Linux Challenge. It was probably, gosh, uh, a year later, where I said, hey, look, let's take a, the video was entitled, like, going back to Windows a year later after the challenge. And... Before anybody watched the video, because it was just me taking a look at Windows after I had left it for a year, 
people were in the comments. I'm unsubscribed. Fine. Leave Linux. Goodbye to you. Don't let the door hit you on the butt. Like people were so mad. I'm like, watch the video. Like, come on. It really worked up over that stuff. It's like headlines are all that matter these days, apparently. Yeah. yeah. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform out there. And they mean that. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That is darn near free. Literally, you could get that much money out of your couch cushion. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks I use those cloud agnostic tutorials, even for things that have nothing to do with the cloud at all, because they're just fantastic tutorials uh, all around. And it doesn't matter what service you use, although we hope it's DigitalOcean, their tutorials are out there for you to help the community out, which is just awesome. You guys say those tutorials, but I don't think people really understand like how good they are. And if they've never gone and looked at them, they're just in comparison to so many other tutorials, like they're just perfectly you know, written. They exactly. are, and they're kept up to date, which is fantastic. Yep. Um, yeah. and, when and when they actually do have an older version, they're like, hey, here's a new updated version. Right, right. Yep. This is for this version. You probably want a different, yeah. So get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL, that $50 credit can go a long way on DigitalOcean and you can get a lot of experience in Linux with that. So again, let them know that we sent you there by going to that link and we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. So in the community feedback this week, we got an email from Hayden. He sends us an email that says, uh, hey DL crew, I've been listening to the show for nearly a year now. And I've learned a lot about the Linux ecosystem and privacy and security from you guys. Just wanted to take the time to vent my frustration at your discussion about Arch in the episode 143. You guys seem to be missing the point of keep it simple. Basically, the the KISS principle. Uh, Simple set does not imply easy. Uh, From the Arch wiki, Arch Linux defines simplicity as without unnecessary additions or modifications. Arch sets itself apart from the other rolling distros and that it doesn't try to make assumptions about what components users will want. This is part of the charm of Arch, and nobody ever implied that it was supposed to be to make it easy. Other rolling distros, including Arch derivatives like Mandraw and Endeavor, exist to make this more approachable. But raw, uh, raw Arch or Vanilla Arch exist for a particular audience who want to be able to make their system completely their own. Just my two cents, and keep up the great w- work with the show. Hayden. So uh, I agree with what you're saying in a sense, like we kind of covered this last week, but the, the main aspect is that the, the, the part where I say that it's, it's not necessarily that it's a negative towards Arch, like yes, Arch wants to do it. My point was that things that they removed that you gives you the option to change, you already had the option to change them anyway when you did the install. So there wasn't that much of a benefit in doing it other than making it more work to do. Like, cause you could have the choice, like maybe you didn't want to choose a, a new kernel. You like the kernel they chose by default. Now you have to choose it. 
And it's a different aspect of like, yeah, it's not, uh, Arch is already for a particular type of user. But I wanted, the, the reason I wanted to talk about this particular piece is like the, the keep it simple aspect is, yes, they don't use the term simple exactly the way that the majority of people look at it. And that's the same, that's the a problem that a lot of open source projects have and, and, and a lot of just, you know, free software projects have, including the term free software, because free software is outright the worst choice they could have chosen to call it because 90% of the people are going to expect it to be referring to cost because it's free software. If it was software freedom or Libra software or anything else, it had been better than just, well, not anything else, but other options would have been better than just free software. And the same thing as calling something simple when you don't mean simple, you mean minimal. And if they had just called it minimal, that'd be very different. People were like, oh, okay, cool. But using terms that are in a societal norm of meaning something else in a more, uh, you know, wide, br broad term is and just a mistake, in my opinion. It's like, it's a marketing thing, essentially. You're saying something is simple when you don't even mean it actually is simple. You mean, like the, the majority of people who associate it to be easy, you mean minimal. So just use the term minimal. And, and in the case of free software, call it software freedom because that's what your point is, a fo is for. And that way you don't have to justify and qualify things like, well, what they really meant with simple is this. What they really meant with free software is this. If you just don't call it those things, you bypass all those problems. Mm -hmm. I think it came down to how they communicated it as well. It was it was uh, a very terse post. And then they said, well, you could have referred to the mailing list, which if you're not a part of the mailing list, you would have never seen that. Um, and there was just a lot of confusion around exactly what it meant. And I don't disagree with what Hayden's saying. It is Arch. That is the point of Arch is that it's very lean and, and you build it yourself. I don't think they have a problem portraying themselves that way or they don't have to justify it. I mean, it is just the Arch way. And I think people can accept that. It's when they make a change like this that just seems to be somewhat arbitrary mm -hmm. and really don't give people... I felt like they really just didn't give me any information. I read the two sentence, you know, post about we're removing these things from base and here's what you need to do in the future. Okay. So why, what's the purpose? You know, what, what is the benefit of this? Yeah. What do I need to do to, you know, get my, get a working system. And I'm not saying I want this to necessarily be spoon fed to me and particularly someone like, like this group of people who are very experienced and, you know, to his point, there's Manjaro, there's other distributions out there that will help you get Arch, an Arch base running in a much easier way. I guess it's just one of those things that I see as being, and I, I, I'm not trying to call them out on this, but I feel it's like a little bit user hostile in the sense that they just kind of said, we're making this change and here it is. And I don't know how they didn't expect people to respond in a negative way to that. We've received a ton of feedback on this. Uh, we've received several emails. There's a lot of comments all directed at me, I guess, because I'm the arch guy on the show. So I get a lot of comments in the YouTube section like, Ryan, you're wrong. I'm like, wait a minute. Michael agreed with me here. Yell at him too. But no, they yell at me because I'm the guy with the arch sign in the back. In fact, one comment cracked me up. He was like, I think you should change your sign to, I used Manjaro, by the way. I'm like, really? Like, first of all, that's not an insult. Second of all, 
Um, I would probably run Manjaro any day of the week, but I run pure Arch. Um, the change isn't a big deal when you look at it from a user perspective. It's a couple extra commands that you type in and you're gonna add a lot of packages and things. And that's basically the counter argument to it. And you know, like you guys were saying, there's nothing wrong with Arch deciding this is what they want to do. Uh, sure. As somebody who wants to promote Arch, who wants to break down the barriers to say Arch is this super difficult thing that you have to sit there all day and do your settings and updates every five seconds to keep it running like you're like a mechanic just constantly working down on a broken down car. Those ideals about Arch are out there. It's reality. This accomplished, at least like Eric said, I can't find anything that says otherwise. Nothing. I could already move my own kernel in. I could already remove a text editor if I didn't need it and put a different one in. I could have already done all of that. That's part of being Arch. So doing this accomplished nothing except made a bunch of tutorials out of date, made people like from all of these different distros from uh, Endeavor, uh, from Arco Linux to uh, Manjaro, all of these base distros now have to change things and figure stuff out as well. They all now are forced to go out there and update their stuff to uh, to compensate for this mm -hmm. on the space that they use for something that has accomplished nothing and so that to me is the frustration with it but i get it like arch people are arch to the bone right they're like no matter arch could literally go in there and be like we're not giving you nothing you just literally you can download nothing to a USB drive, plug it in and install Arch. Just follow the wiki. That, and people in Arch would be like, yeah, that's minimal as all get out. It's so simple. <laughs> but I just don't think it's forward thinking. And, and I think that they did more. Um, I just don't think it helps the reputation of Arch overall. But we can agree to disagree on this for all the people sending all of your emails about it. Mm -hmm. I get it. You like it. And good. Uh, it's not going to stop me from running Arch, but it certainly puts you know somebody who's on a platform that reaches across the world that wants to help kind of change people's opinions about Arch and what it is. It doesn't help me, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. help me do that. And that wasn't their goal. They're not out there to help me. But I personally wanted to push Arch more. I wanted people to see the power of Arch and how fantastic it is. And this makes it more difficult than it was even before to do it because they just keep making things, making decisions that don't add any benefit right now to what's going on overall in so, Linux. And a solution in, in search of a problem. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think this really was another example of Linux coming up with a really bad PR um, scenario. Uh, Ubuntu did it when they announced the taking away a 32-bit bits and pieces. Arch have done it by now saying, oh, by the way, you've now got this load to install as well. And it comes back to, um, I think, Michael's talk that he did itself about marketing within Linux and having people understand that, yes, you can make a technically good decision, but you've got to spin it right. You've got to tell the story right. You've got to market it right. Um, and, we're, and we're seeing that across a whole host of Linux distros, not just Arch. Or just also be clear, for example, when they announced this change, they said they're removing the kernel, bash, uh, a text editor, and other things that you might expect to be there. That's not very helpful to know what you have to put back that you removed. <laughs> so yeah. in a case where you want to change something like this, that's a, you know, a seemingly arbitrary, that is a fundamental change to you know, tutorials and stuff, 
not only is it making them out of date, they're not providing the information that they need to. So they're going to go in mm-hmm. and manually figure out how that they need to fix it. And that's but not for me that, Yeah, that was just a classic example of the Arch Wiki. That was a, that was a typical statement that you would read on the Arch Wiki. Here you go, we're doing this. Now, to find out what this is, you've got to click here, then you've got to click there, and then you've got to go and read this, and then you've got to do a bit of investigation. Mm-hmm. There's never anything simple about Arch. So having it under the KISS principle, yeah, you're right. It's the, the, the wrong terminology that they're using. By the way, that was Zeb talking, so you can send your comments to Zeb. <laughs> and before that was Michael talking, so they also are in <laughs> teasing. You can, you can bring your hate. Bring your hate train towards me. Bring it. So friend of the show and our favorite hacker, Bo, wrote in to us. Now, if you were thinking about sending those hate train emails, you may want to think twice because Bo's my personal friend. And that is a friend (laughs) you do not want to mess with. So we've had Bo on the show. Bo's also been on the Ask Noah show, part of the network. Just a fantastic, amazing person to sit down and talk to full of tons of information. He's a pen tester, uh, has been doing it most of his life, and he is extraordinarily talented individual. So um, he writes in and says, hi guys, great show on the Microsoft thing. Sure, it is a good thing that they are now embracing Linux, but still we must remember Microsoft is a corporation, one of which has always had a predatory nature since the beginning. Remember, they grew on vendor lock-in and still do. Sure, they open source some things, but nothing but money-making. Linus is a person with morals and a soul. Microsoft is a soulless corporation with only one reason to exist, to make money for its shareholders. Common sense tells you that if a dog has bitten you many times, to not turn your back on him again. If you do, you will be bitten again, and it will be your fault for turning your back when you know better about them buying GitHub, did you ever think that they now have access to a lot of code to steal for themselves? They've got to make money from that free service. Just my two cents, Bo. So an interesting take on a discussion we had where Linus kind of was discussing in an interview that the Microsoft uh, embracing Linux was kind of a good thing. And Bo has a kind of a very different opinion that I think a lot of people who've been in the Linux community for a while share because they've seen Microsoft say things like Linux is cancer in the past. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they've seen Microsoft do their extend and extinguish concept. Um, And there's even some recent things that have come up where they're saying Microsoft is kind of doing some extinguishing and I can't recall the companies, what the stories were, but I was seeing them in the news this week. But in any case, it's an interesting take. I don't know what you all think um, about this. We've tried to kind of stay a little neutral and say, well, we don't trust them a hundred percent. It's interesting. Some of the things we're going to be, they're doing, but let's wait and see. I don't know if you all have a different, I mean, I'm totally open to say that I don't trust them at all. And I'm open to, I have, I'm open-minded, but I have no expectation that they're going to change their mind. It's a situation where they they are they have changed. Yes, but I don't think that that change has justified us, you know, believing the things that they're going to say because they still, even if they don't have intentions to extinguish Linux, but that doesn't even if they did it doesn't matter because they have no ability to extinguish it. So that's just them going. Well, we've given up trying to battle Linux. We're just going to now embrace it and then just accept what it is. But that that's a situation where I think that Microsoft has like they have potential to prove that they care, 
but they don't have potential to prove to me that they are a completely different company and that they don't have and that legacy history that they have is no longer a factor in their their uh, game plan because maybe they don't have the intention to do that to Linux, but they are purchasing companies and then shelving them in some cases, and they've done that for many years, and they have been making. Uh, Windows 10, which is a telemetry cesspool, and it's basically a a user nightmare. Uh, And like, there's so many things that they still do, and it doesn't really matter that they they're changing a couple things or outsourcing a few things. But to say that they have changed, I agree. They're no longer the massive mountain monster, disgusting thing they used to be. Now they're just a smaller monster, and in some ways still disgusting. And just to put a, a, a UK perspective on it, I'll give my two pennies worth. I think um, Bo is 100% right. They do heart Linux, but only in as far as it helps their bottom line. They are taking it on board. They are producing Azure, and they are making a shed load of money out of it. Don't think for one minute they are going to give us anything for free that can make them money. That's just not the nature of the beast. So whilst they're embracing it, they're embracing it for their own ends, not for the betterment of Linux. I frankly don't even understand why we're having the conversation about how a publicly traded company could ever be anything other than a corporation. And I mean, it is the root of what it does. I mean, it's a, it's a dumb animal. It knows nothing other than it wants money. That is the, the sole purpose of it. And so it doesn't love anything. It doesn't, it, you know, like it's marketing, right? We've been sitting here talking sure. about marketing. Like that's all it is. It's Microsoft pushing Azure and saying, we now have WSL2. We're, we're making all these things. We're going to open source some of our code, you know, little p- unimportant pieces of it. But I have to say from an IT professional's perspective, they're making life a lot easier for people who need these tools. And uh, having been in that situation, the thing that I think is getting overlooked is that WSL2 and the ability to integrate and in a mixed environment because that is the reality of the world you know you may have linux servers but i guarantee you you have windows desktops and other stuff going on uh the the practical aspect of what they've been doing is hugely beneficial to the it community and it sells and that's why they're doing it they're going to make a lot of money off of azure they're going to make a lot of money off of being able to incorporate all these environments together and manage them you know, I was talking to Adam and he says, you know, with WSL2, he can run Ubuntu or some other distribution and it's native performance. He doesn't have to have a Linux box anymore to do some of the things that he couldn't do, even in WSL1. So, I mean, they, they are making products that fix problems that people have and people will pay money f- to fix those problems. And that's, I mean, that is just what we're talking about here. It's not, do they love open source? Do they love Linux? That has nothing to do with it, in my opinion. Yeah, I would say that they don't. But at the same time, um, I think that even if they do change, if they do things that is for their bottom line that helps Linux, is I think that would show that you know, even if they like they're not, they've changed a little. And and whether while I'll still never trust them to be like you know like I would trust them with my data or anything like that's never going to happen. Um, but and they, they you could say that at least they're not Google in some cases, but at the same time, my, Microsoft has the opportunity to at least gain some favor by doing things that even if you made they made money from it, 
they could make money in a th- in a sense that they pr- pr- provide certain like certain softwares available to be run on Linux, like Microsoft Office. You'd still have to buy Microsoft Office, but by making it support Linux, makes it possible that people that companies could switch to Linux more easily and not have to worry about uh, wh- whether they have the support for their Office suite or maybe for Exchange or whatever. If you could run those things on Linux, it would make it possible for companies to switch away, which would be ne- not necessarily negative towards uh, Microsoft because they're still getting money for those services and that software, but it is going to be a, a thing that shows that it's not just for their money. That would be an example. But every time they've released anything, whether it's open source, whether it supports Linux or whatever, it has been for their bottom line, for their their benefit. And yes, it, while it does help Linux in some cases, like open sourcing.net, that does help Linux. It allows uh, third-party developers to bring applications to Linux. Sure, okay. But they're doing it specifically so that they have the ability to take .NET applications and put it on Azure because everybody's using Linux for Azure. Not everybody, but like 60% or something. So it's still for their bottom line, pretty much everything they do. But yes. I, I think it's, it's, it's yes, you have to take exactly. into consideration. Yeah, I think you have to take into consideration that there is a possibility that they could wise up and realize that there are things that they could do that would be at least people go, okay, hey, you're not completely awful. Still awful, but not completely. And hopefully they will someday do those things. Well, I think there's some benefit to Microsoft, but I, what Eric is saying is absolutely true. It's like, you know, raising a baby lion and then it grows up and eats you and you go, why? Well, that's what they do by nature, right? They kill things. So um, the the idea is a corporation, what Eric was saying is just going to do what it does, what it's tasked to do, which is make money. There's nothing necessarily evil by that in itself. What, what tends to grind people though, is the fact that Microsoft doesn't just, has a reputation of not just going out there and getting money. They have a reputation of destroying anything in their path to do so. Mm-hmm. And if you watch my Windows 10 S video, I think you'll be very interested. I was kind of shocked, honestly, at how they were able to. Now, a, a technical person will look at Windows 10 S and just disable it and move on. But there's, again, you got to watch the video. But there's lots of warnings and very scary text that they use to make you stay within Windows 10 S. And at the same time, they lock it down to the point where, for instance, you know, if you type in browsers, you're going to see a gigantic banner for Internet Explorer come up. There are no other browsers except for what appears to be knockoff browsers, like uh, one was like Firephonix or something like that in there (laughs) that you can download. So actual Mozilla Firefox and things are not available. And if you try to download it, install it, it will give you a scary warning. You're going to lose your security. You're going to potentially get viruses. Have you tried Internet Explorer? So these are the practices that take it from just wanting to be a really innovative company that makes money, makes great products and people buy it to... I don't trust this company at all. And they do very damaging things to make it anti-competitive situation in which it's unfair actually for what they have. So that anti-competitive nature is the problem with Microsoft and just saying, well, they're just a company and they want to make money. No, they've gone too far too many times. And that's why people are looking at it and going, yeah, it's, it's going to take a long time to build that trust back because it's not just about making money with them. It's about their reputation and how they made that money in the past in what I would consider very unfair ways. 
Oh yeah. I mean, there's even people who like, if you go like there was a, that windows weekly show, the Twit network, they had a, a, there, there was a conversation they had when, when there was an interview with uh, Bill Gates about what, what do you think his biggest mistake was or whatever? And he listed basically not destroying Android. Um, but like the, um, the, one of the hosts of that show countered Bill Gates and said that the biggest mistake is how toxic and hostile the environment at Microsoft is and how toxic the company itself is. And it's like, this is a person who is hosting a show promoting Windows saying how awful Microsoft has been in for decades. And it's like that they're, they're at a level where maybe they're not bad now. Maybe they're not as bad, I guess. They're not as bad, but they used to be so awful that you really couldn't describe it accurately. And now it's like, okay, they're now controlled by a new, another person. There's a whole new guard in control. However, it's still Microsoft, so you have a gigantic hill to climb. If it's and and, and you're gonna, we're not gonna give you tools to help you climb. You're gonna have to figure it out yourself. And to be clear, we're we're talking about Microsoft Corporation. If you work for Microsoft. I know a lot of people listen to Destination Linux that work for Microsoft. You're doing the right thing. You're trying to internally, like we've talked about before, change the company from within. You shouldn't, this isn't towards you or anybody working there specifically. This is about the corporation entity as a whole and its history. And hopefully it does change from within. If they get enough Linux people in there, um, you know, and change the culture, it, it very well could be a different company in the future. And there's also a case where I don't, to this point proves that, Anything other than, like Eric said, they're a company being a company, and the the Linux Linux Microsoft loves Linux thing is a great marketing line that they took and ran with, and a lot of the big companies that support Linux today, as far as uh, represent Linux today, are partnering very closely with Microsoft with things like WSL and stuff as well. And that's where the primary focus is. There's nothing inherently evil in that. I wish the resources would be spent more back internally than working with Microsoft to make WSL work great. But who am I? So there you go. Yeah, I think one other thing uh, worth mentioning is that a lot of us have tried in the IT world to get Linux into our enterprises. A lot of cases you have resistance there because it's open source and unless you're buying Red Hat licenses and have that support behind it, purchasing decisions and things, you know, SLAs, all of those important things. Um, so the idea that Linux or that Microsoft has this, we love Linux marketing campaign. I could go to my manager and say, look, this is a legit thing. Microsoft actually is saying Linux is a real thing now. So there's, I think, you know, there's a lot of thought that went behind this marketing. I think we look at it knee jerk reaction, like, oh yeah, you love Linux. Sure you do. But think about like those purchasing decisions. Think about those types of discussions that might be happening. All the years of people, you know, frustrated and struggling trying to get Linux into the enterprise. And I think this unlocks the door in a lot of ways for that. Gives us a a chance to market on behalf of them, saying, "Hey, they even love Linux, so you should too. Give it a shot." So this is just a classic example of uh, why we love hearing from our worldwide community. Uh, A simple email from our friend Bo discussing his views on Microsoft led us to giving you our views. And what I think might be interesting is let's see what DLN Extend can do with this particular topic, maybe on an upcoming show. I'm sure we'll we'll have different points of view from both. You better agree with me. 
<laughs> from both Eric and Nate. So we love hearing from you. You can get back to us uh, in many ways. You can send us a short email or a short video that might get incorporated into the show. So send your video links or emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So it's no mystery that we are all huge fans of the work being done over at Pine64. For those who may not be aware, Pine64 is a community-driven company and platform that brings a really impressive suite of hardware, leveraging the ARM64 to bring us devices like single board computers, laptops, smartwatches, and tablets in the future, all leveraging the power of Linux. So we're very excited that with us today, we get to introduce a very special guest, Lucas from Pine64. He is the community manager. So Lucas, welcome to the show. So much for having me. Cheers. One of the first questions we like to ask every guest, because obviously people want to get into all of the awesome hardware that you guys are producing over there, but we like to get to know each individual guest and find out how did you get started in Linux initially? I think that my first encounter with Linux was during early university years um, in 2006 or seven. I think it was Ubuntu at the time, which I installed on a Windows machine just purely out of curiosity what Linux is, as probably many have started off. But then I went back to Windows and then I went to Mac and it was really first with, um, with the Raspberry Pi, with the original Pi that I got back into Linux and I saw the usefulness of small single bulk computers and uh, sort of embedded devices um, for my own personal need at the time. So my journey with Linux started really with, um, with the Raspberry Pi. So that's interesting. So you started initially in university, experienced some, I hear that a lot, some folks in university probably using Linux here and there, and then you went to Windows. So you kind of left Linux behind and then you went to Mac and Raspberry Pi is what brought you back into kind of Linux. And I have to believe right now that a lot of people have experienced Linux for the first time, even if they don't necessarily initially realize it yet, that that's their first experience with Linux lately is the Raspberry Pi. And those, those ARM single uh, chip boards are just bringing a whole new level of hobbyists and hackers, if you will, into basically Linux without, and, and I wonder how many of them realize that it's Linux behind the scenes, but that's really cool that that's what brought you back. Yeah. And also yeah. the fact that you said it was like 2006, 2007, it, it makes sense why you, you, you know, felt more comfortable later on rather than then because. Yeah. I can't re really recall what it was, what I, what it was that I was trying to do. I think that at the time I could not afford the windows, uh, Microsoft suite. Mm-hmm. And I needed to write on something. And then somebody said, oh, you can use OpenOffice. And uh, in order to do that, you have to install Linux. So I remember installing Linux. Uh, and I think it was because I needed something to actually uh, do. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, it. it's interesting they told you that also that wasn't true back then? That wasn't true. No, no. I later found out <laughs> You could use OpenOffice anytime, <laughs> any platform yeah. at the time. Um, also LibreOffice now for people who are interested in about the, the legacy, you know, that one now, correct. Uh, correct. But yeah, it was it was kind of interesting as they did it because even though that wasn't accurate, it's kind of good that you had the ability to try it out that way. So, I guess. yeah, and I'm really glad they got it wrong because you're here with us today, which is fantastic. Yeah, exactly. So, so, 
continuing that journey, um, how did you get started working with Pine64? When did you sort of like first discover it and, and what made you decide, you know what, this is something I want to get really involved in? I was writing my PhD in a completely different field at the time. And what I needed was, I needed two things. I needed a device that would uh, allow me to store uh, sensitive data, which I was using for my, for my doctorate. Um, locally, as is the legal requirement here in the United Kingdom. And I needed to have fast access to that data. At the time, I think that the Raspberry Pi 2 was out on the market. I was looking at that, but that didn't have uh, gigabit Ethernet. And then the Kickstarter began. I wasn't a part of the Kickstarter, so I was just a, a backer. And... Uh, um, so I, uh, I backed it and I used it as effectively local storage and, and uh, as a NAS. And the other thing that I needed it for was for, I was working with, um, uh, with two different patient groups and um, I needed these patients to fill in uh, applications um, on some sort of device. And I tried tablets and tablets were quite difficult because you would have to have um, somebody from hospital staff be around because these are expensive devices. So if you give somebody an iPad, they can just walk away with it. Yeah. And then elderly people had difficulties filling them in on their smartphones or didn't have a smartphone. And uh, there were, uh, you know, another option was just paperwork, but then somebody has to file it or I have to type it in. So what I did was I, I mounted um, um, the Pine A64 together with the LCD screen into basically an IKEA furniture, which was there at the hospital, so people could just fill in their answers. And this is how I, uh, how my journey with Pine64 really began as, as a backer. And then um, I got to know um, the founder and the owner of Pine64 TLM, and that's really where it took off for me. Yeah. So I got involved from the very bottom of. Uh, uh, nice. So that's pretty awesome that you you started as a backer and then became a part of the company. Like that's the fact that that's even a possibility is something I wouldn't have even expected. So that's awesome. We're always on the lookout for people who want to be actively involved uh, with with the project, and uh, we're looking to actually move away from the notion that we, as Pine sixty four, that we're a company, but we're looking to um, uh, change the perception of ourselves as to being what you would call, or work in the same way that uh, traditional open source software projects work, but they are just surrounded uh, around one vendor's hardware. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So Pine just recently launched the Pinebook Pro laptop, which is, I think, an amazing achievement. There's been a lot of excitement around it. And everybody's waiting for the the shipping notification, the next batches, and all of that. Uh, and I'll tell you that you know, for myself personally, I wasn't particularly interested in the original Pinebook just because it was low spec. And you guys were very upfront about that, which I completely appreciate as an end user, uh, saying like, don't have huge expectations out of this very modest hardware. But the Pinebook Pro looks like something that you could use on an everyday basis. It's a great mo mobility platform. Um, can you, what, what are your favorite features of that new system? There are so many. Um, I think that with the original Pinebook, we still approached it with the mentality of a single board computer manufacturer. Um, so we left a lot of unpopulated headers uh, inside the laptop and we were thinking that people will, you know, they'll get this inexpensive thing and rather than using it as a laptop, they'll use it as a single board computer with a battery and a screen on the go. 
uh, you know, hacking in uh, LTE or GPS uh, into it and making interesting things out of this. Uh, we even had a possibility to access GPIOs uh, using the SD card slot uh, on the original Pinebook and all sorts of stuff. And this n never materialized. So it turned <laughs> out that literally, uh, despite being told that this is not you know a laptop this is not something you, you you're meant to use this is meant for experimentation rather than a laptop it turns out that there are very few people who are actually interested in a device in this form factor so what people are interested in is an actual proper arm uh, linux uh, laptop built with sort of the core ideals and and um, things you would want to see in such a laptop from the ground up. So this is what the Pinebook Pro is. And a favorite feature, um, I think that it's lovely that it's made out of durable metal. Yes, um, I love that. Uh, the keyboard is excellent, and you don't have to take my word for it. There's people on the forum and in the chats who are saying that uh, you know, excellent keyboard, one of the, the, the best ones, even comparing it up against um, top tier laptops. Nice. Um, it has a great screen. And I think that the addition of uh, privacy switches is, um, is a little nice touch, which we managed to pull off uh, quite late on in the production uh, that uh, you know, the manages to, to sell uh, this idea that not only is it a, uh, a laptop built with open source software in mind, but it also has a lot of the uh, privacy features that people want kind of already there and built in the hardware. Yeah, that is really cool. I, I really like the part of the privacy system. And I also like the way you did it with a function key structure to do it where, uh, you know, you can do it without having to have spe special switches on it so that if those switches ever got broken or damaged or some kind, you don't have to worry about that because the keyboard itself does it. So it makes it a lot cleaner and more efficient in that sense. And I think the like, it was kind of interesting how you said that if you were created the original Pinebook as a thing that was more of experimental, not necessarily as a laptop. And it made me laugh because I didn't know that that was the purpose. And I didn't know a lot of those things. And I have a Pinebook original and I've had it yeah. for, for about six, seven months now. And yeah. now I want to go and play with all those things because I wasn't even aware of it. I thought it was just like a like a laptop kind of thing. So uh, now I'm going to go mess with some stuff <laughs> after this. You show. got some hacking to do there. Yeah, exactly. There's plenty you can do. There's a um, unpopulated USB 2.0 on, on the actual uh, board just just the header so you can solder on you know something and there's plenty of empty space inside of the original nice. pine book so you can do all sorts of funny stuff with that yeah and I, and I did notice that of... the, la the the laptop the pine book was really easy to take apart i never bothered to do so but i did notice it was easy because it was just basically like a one panel on the back and that's it uh but i did yeah. utilize the sd card slot a lot in a lot of different ways so i did discover that part but the rest of it is like i, I have a lot to do now yeah, well, there's a lot of cool things in the Pro as well that kind of still allow you, even though you guys are kind of meeting the need of the public that wants a ARM-based laptop to use as a laptop, you still have a lot of modularity built into the Pro, like, for instance, mm -hmm. an unpopulated PCIe M2 NVMe slot. So Correct. there are a lot of things you can do as a hardware guy. The hackability, even in this new lineup, is brilliant, but I can tell you that the one thing that has always bugged me about generally lower cost laptops is they're made out of that cheap plastic and the keyboard just goes in every time you type. There is nothing more 
frustrating than that. And I have to imagine I haven't got my hands on it yet uh, with this magnesium alloy body that you have on the pro. That's a problem that doesn't exist. It doesn't. It's nice and sturdy. Yeah, that's it's awesome. One of the first things that people notice is how sturdy and how um, sort of solid the laptop feels in their hands. So yeah, we're very happy with how it turned out, both uh, software and hardware-wise. I think there we uh, we have still some way to go to resolve um, some issues which we have with the trackpad um, for it. Um, and we are talking to the vendor, and we got the source for the patching utility. Uh, so it's being worked on, and I'm quite confident that in, within a week or two, we're going to have a patch, and then it's going to be perfect. Nice. Mm -hmm. and, and I can attest to the fact that the, the typing on it is really, really sweet. And if you if you go back to that episode where I, I showed it on screen, and I was just holding it up by the corner, there wasn't an inch of movement on the, the flexing of it and what was also good as well is holding it by the top of the lid the keyboard just didn't swing loose and the the hinge was just marvelous so the design build i can i can testify to that that and that was just a development model i was looking at so you know that was an, an early one as well so that's going to be really really good yeah i have to say when i think of the pinebook pro just in general when i look at that the execution is is fantastic like you said mm -hmm. it's the hardware it's the software it's the build quality it's your perception of it when you hold it like i'm sure whenever i see one i'm going to have a hard time believing it's a 200 piece of equipment yes i think that you know the first impression which people have is that this feels like a much more um something that is much higher end than the price tag entails yes i think oh, yeah. that is the general uh, feeling that people the people have is because you know we um we sell these laptops at, at cost, basically. At, uh, we, we do not make money on them. We just want the notion of, we want to grow our community on the one hand, we want to invite developers to work with us, uh, but we also want to grow the notion of ARM laptops being the new norm. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, that's, that's awesome. Like the, the fact that you're doing it at cost and just to kind of show that, like when you were talking about earlier, you want to make sure that, that the company is more it's not just a company it's a it's an open source uh, focused like organization and that happens right. to do hardware as well like that yeah. is like the perfect example of the comp it's it's more than just a company because you're you're not even trying to make a profit on it you just wanted to make a product that is beneficial to people who want to have that kind of product and even in the sense of like the original pine book when I, when uh, like eric made a point about how when he first saw it he didn't uh, it didn't like look like something he would wanted and I had the same exact experience. Like, I was like, okay, that's cool that they're making a laptop and it's pretty cheap. That's really amazing. But I never like really gave it a chance. And then when I had the opportunity to try it out, I loved it. Like it was, it just, it solved a problem that I didn't even know I had in the sense of like the best travel laptop I've ever had because it's so convenient and light. And the, like, I'm a fanboy of the original too. So when the Pinebrook Pro was announced, I was like, this is fantastic and I can't wait. So yeah, I, I think that the Pinebook Pro is 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 going to be you know I'm already a fanboy of it and I haven't even tried it yet. So um, happy to hear. <laughs> so I but I'm curious what what lessons did you learn from the original Pinebook that you you integrated into the new laptop? Oh, there's plenty. Um, we 
we always wanted to, and we still want to make it possible for our users to upgrade their original Pinebook to a Pinebook Pro-esque Pinebook. So we will be selling just the Pinebook Pro mainboard. Mm. Um, so if if that's something you you want, you'll be losing some of the uh, functionality, such as you know the, the privacy switches or um, other things. Or if you have some one of the earlier models, which one do you have? Do you have the 14 inch or the 11? I think inch? I do have the 14. Yeah. So obviously you you won't be getting a, a high resolution or 1080p. Uh, display, IPS display, but uh, you will be able to upgrade your current uh, um, uh, Pinebook to something which is which will resemble more a Pinebook Pro. We just need to work out how we're gonna deal with uh, with all the heat, with heat dissipation in a chassis that is plastic. So what you're saying is he could take his original Pinebook. You're gonna sell the mainboard separate for the Pro. You could put the new mainboard into his original Pinebook. Maybe there's some heat dissipation things, some things that he could add in there, but essentially make a Pinebook Pro out of the current. That's amazing because that's a recycling thing as well, right? It it stops e-waste because you're not taking that Pinebook and then just throwing it in the garbage, which unfortunately some people do, or, you know, Let's sit, letting it sit in the closet unused forever. It re- basically allows you to a modular laptop allows you to upgrade it on the fly. That's brilliant. I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So if you love your 11 inch plastic pine book and or the the older model, the 14 inch, and uh, you have you know you don't see a reason to buy a whole pine book pro, then in the future you'll be able to you know I don't know how much these PCBs will be, but they're probably going to be around 30, 30 bucks, 35 bucks, wow. something like that. So you'll be able to buy one of those, take out the A64 one from the current Pinebook, put this one in, and then we may have to have some sort of, um, what do they call heat pipe um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or some mechanism, or maybe you will have to buy it together with the metal bottom that fits onto the original Pinebook. I don't know how we're going to resolve this. This is actually one of the problems and one of the reasons why uh, it's not available at the Pinebook Pro launch. Mm-hmm. Because we haven't really resolved the the heating issue. Yeah, it's totally understandable. I don't think anybody expected this to be even a possibility in the first place. So no, it being at launch, I, I don't think it's so really cool. Too. Yeah, this is like and, really cool concept. And it's just like another another arrow uh, in, in in your bag where the the amateur hobbyist can take apart a computer and rebuild a better one learning how all the things go together why you need the extra hint sink why you need the plastic or the, the metal plates at the bottom i mean that's just incredible really really right. good yeah it also makes more content for this show too mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely in addition to the pinebook pro you've also announced some other exciting products uh, that we also want to talk about like we're consistently being asked about you know what's a good tablet for linux and you can tell us can you tell us how much can you tell us about the the pine tab and when we might be able to get our hands on one and that kind of thing. What I can tell you about the Pine Tab is that the Pine Tab, in in practice and in theory, we could uh, trigger the production very soon uh, for the Pine Tab. But since we have been dealing with both the delays of the uh, Pinebook Pro, and we have hit a couple of production snags of uh, of the Pine Phone for developers, we kind of shelved it for now. I think that uh, uh, a couple of e- episodes back, I think it was Noah who asked uh, if we're not stretching ourselves thin 
And the answer to that is production or hardware wise, no, because all of our devices are being manufactured at different factories. But when everything goes wrong, as it did for us in September, you know, uh, Murphy's Law, just multiple products not, you know, production not going the way it's supposed to, suddenly we get snowed in because there are people who are emailing us when stuff ships. Uh, we have media, we have other people, and it becomes very, very difficult. So, uh, we put the Pine tab to the side. When we deal with the Pine phone, we're going to come back to the uh, to the tab. Uh, I think that uh, hardware-wise, uh, developers gave us feedback that uh, uh, the Pogo pin connector, which which attaches magnetically to a keyboard, um, uh, is extremely fragile. So this needs to be strengthened, and mm. uh, that the speaker is, that the quality of the speaker is relatively poor. Uh, so we're going to have to replace the speaker. Uh, but other than that, we're going to be looking for a suitable operating system for the tablet. And I know that uh, just in recent days, we saw both post-market OS guys uh, showing uh, their builds running on their dev kits and Sailfish OS guys. And uh, I think Manjaro has an in-house image for it and Ubuntu Touch as well. So, you know, I'm I'm sure that they could probably polish these builds up relatively quickly. So. Uh, my guess is that you will be seeing the the Pine tab in uh, Q1 of uh, 2020. Very. Cool. I think this is going to make people so happy. First of all, I love mm -hmm. that you guys are um, taking the time to step back and make sure that you listen to the community feedback, which clearly you're doing, and making changes to the production line and not just launching something to say, "Look, we did it." And that you see a lot of companies doing that, and it's just. It just ends up leaving leaving a bad taste in people's mouth when that happens because you get a subpar product, which is not what um, you know companies were founded on or what they're known for. But the tablet itself, I, I get this question. We've gotten this question of Destination Linux, yeah. let alone on my own channels. It's almost like feels like weekly, probably not, but feels like weekly. Of can you please tell me a good tablet that I can get that's Linux based? And there are not a lot of options here at all for people to get a good tablet in Linux. They're, you're basically taking something that was meant for another OS, you're kind of hacking around and you lose features. For instance, we were talking earlier on the show about the Surface Go line, uh, or even the Surface line as a whole, because I've used Surface 1s, 2s, 3s, and so forth, and put Linux on them. But you're still losing functionality, you still have issues, it still never works to its fullest capability um, because it wasn't designed for Linux. And this is the first time, you know, we're going to eventually have a tablet that we can proudly say, go get this. And by the way, it's going to come with Linux on it and you're not going to have to hack around and the cameras are going to work out of the box and your keyboard's going to snap in and instantly get recognized. And this to me is something that, again, you guys have your pulse on the community and you can tell um, and it, it's just something the community really needs. So we're excited mm -hmm. for it, and we'll get it when we get it. But when we get it, we're very excited for it. Yeah, music music to our ears. So picking up on something that you um, just spoke about there, um, and since I'm the only one here that's actually held uh, the development model, even though I made a real uh, funny boo-boo, and I'll tell, tell them about that in a moment. Um, I, so I'm, I'm the only one who's actually seen the, the Pine phone or the makings of the pine phone so and, jealous and the funny thing was yeah i i got there and i saw this thing and i thought yeah great wait rj45 are we gonna plug okay <laughs> and then no zeb 
it's this is the board that you plug all this into and you can develop this is not the phone you number <laughs> i was thinking about a phone this long and a big wheel of cat five cable on the back of it i'll let one i'll of, let lucas one of these things yeah that's the yeah and i thought nice. wow rj45 this is going to be so cool so, so tell us a bit about it and 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 how how is the development of that model coming oh in? i want one just send that through the screen lucas please <laughs> This is actually a dummy, so I don't actually have a prototype there. Um, yeah. Apart from those which are being assembled right now um, for developers, and we hope to ship to devs in two days' time. So I don't know when does this air. By the time it- we actually, but when it, when this airs, if you did it in two days, it'll probably already be done. Yep. Okay, so they're already en route to, nice. to developers at this point in, in the future uh, present. So um, it's going extremely well. Um, I'm The phone is one of these projects which I was always probably the more skeptical person within Pine64. Um, I was always uh, thinking, you know, this is, it's, it's difficult to get it right. It is... Um, there's so many challenges, not only in uh, in manufacturing it, but also uh, getting to uh, getting it right for the price and getting it right for what users want from a uh, a Linux phone. And uh, I must say that in the past, literally six months, my opinion has changed dramatically on the subject, and I think that this is going to be probably the one device that we will be. Uh, known in the broader Linux community for, uh, because it's going really well. I've, I'm, I'm seeing how much uh, time and effort uh, developers are putting into uh, making it work, and it works really well already. As of today, I think that the last two things that are not completely functional is the front selfie camera, and I think you could... so. You can make phone calls at the time, but developers are not happy with how the microphone is implemented at this time. So that's going to have to be altered. But these are the last two things. Other than that, that's where we are. We have pretty much completed OS images across across the major Linux operating systems that are working with us. Nice. That's awesome. That is such a good update. I This, to me, is the one area in Linux and and those who have been with the show know that I talk about this a lot because it's close to my heart. I've worked in this industry in telecom for 20 years. I've seen the disaster of not having a good Linux solution out there and what some people consider to be Linux like Android uh, with everything layered on top of it. It just everything we expect from our desktops from a privacy security standpoint is gone. It's out the window. Having a true Linux solution on a mobile device is an impossible task in so many ways. At least it would have been a few years ago. Today, with all of the work that the software developers have done to make, like UB Ports team, for instance, start making all of these um intricate OSs that will work on a mobile device and finding solutions for the app issue, because that's one of the biggest hurdles is you've got two stores out there, Apple and Android with millions of apps. And while people are willing to give up a lot, 
you know, you still want to be able to access your bank. You still want to be able to maybe go and, and go on to Mastodon and Twitter and do some different things like that. Uh, you have to have the basics there. And we also forget that, you know, when I was watching, for instance, when iPhones launched and stuff, what cut and paste didn't come for years. Mm -hmm. But now if you get a device, you guys are expected to have all of that functionality that honestly took years of growth from other companies to have it on day one. Um, thankfully, you have such great partnerships with so many software developers out there that are making these OSs. And that's one of the things that I think is really unique about your phone is even on your splash page where you're showing the image of the phone, you don't show a particular OS in a home screen. Instead, you actually show a bunch of images of the various mobile operating systems that users will have a choice of putting on their device when they get it. And that just speaks volumes to me. I love that. Yes. I think that from the very start, we, we thought of the phone um, rather than a product for ourselves, in a sense. We thought of it as a product for the Linux on phone development teams and their respective communities. So we didn't think of it as a, uh, you know, a strictly Pine64 product. We thought... Uh, you know, um, it's a platform. So many, yes, exactly. You know, give these because it's because the whole situation with uh, the B, the big two um, mobile phone uh, operating systems is that it's a it's a chicken and the egg situation. If you don't have Linux phones and you don't have users, then it's you know it's it's impossible to actually get. Um, certain applications uh, or developers right. to even consider these applications. So it needs to start somewhere. And the idea of having a uh, performance but uh, inexpensive Linux phone is so that those people who are on the fence don't have to shell out lots of money and just pick it up and give it a go and give all the options available and well-established within the broader community to give them a go uh, at the same time. Yeah, that is and, awesome. Yeah. and. Uh, Recently, I've been looking into, you know, what is being said about the Pine phone and stuff. And um, there is a lot of information there. Some of it is correct. Some of it is not correct. Uh, but since I, I get a chance to, to speak and, and be on camera. So uh, let me just say that contrary to some of the things that are being said out there, and I don't think that anybody does so because they want to do us harm or developers any harm, uh, I think they do so because they simply don't know. But there won't be a single uh, binary blob on uh, the root FS, so the root file system of, of the phone. Uh, all the drivers, including the graphics GPU driver, are, are all open source. There's obviously some uh, code that is, or firmware that is still uh, proprietary on the phone. There's no way around it. Uh, right. uh, the modem runs it. Uh, right. But I think I think it's really down to the modem. There's a little piece of out of focus firmware on the back camera, and uh, the drivers for Bluetooth and Wi-Fi are open, but the firmware on the module is is not. So these are the three mm -hmm. things. So the modem, the little out of focus um, for the camera, and um, and Bluetooth and Wi-Fi firmware. So these are the only three things that are locked down across the phone. Everything else, everything on the root file system is completely open, open source software and running on mainline Linux. That is so people understand that though, you know, when you say that there's these little, you know, 
pieces like the modem, for instance, the firmware there, this isn't a situation where there's a open source alternative that you just chose. Now we're going to go with the proprietary version. Correct. There's no option because a lot of this has to do with licensing and all of these type of things. If there was an option, I have no doubt you guys would already implemented it. This is a situation where you've got the most open source you can get while still being able to produce something functional for people to use at the end Absolutely. of the day. Yes. Yep. I guess that's the message I'm trying to get across. Well articulated. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, this is actually like that. That's the kind of thing that I, you know, I, I'd love to hear. Like the fact that it's not only not only just the phone itself using open source software on the operating system, but also focusing on making the like as much as you can to be open. Uh, you know, because I've I've seen people saying that it wasn't open at all, and I'm happy to hear that that's definitely not the case. Um, there's there's many things that I think that. Uh, the Pine Phone, it, the Pine Pine CC4 is doing that is fantastic, and just just another one of those things. Yeah. How are you finding the partnership with the OSs out there for mobile devices um, going for you guys? Is there a keen interest from them? Is there a good working relationship? I mean, it has been phenomenal. These guys have not only taken it forward, or they they literally made it possible. Yeah. Without them, there would be no. Fine phone. Uh, from the moment uh, we we thought that we want to make a phone, we want to make a Linux phone, and we want to make it inexpensive so that people can give the concept of Linux on phone a go. Straight away, we knew that we have to secure partnership with at least one or two projects. As things stand, we have a fantastic working relationship with, to my knowledge, every single Linux on phone project today. Nice, um, big and small. And the best thing about it is that they are in our uh, community chat. They're talking together and they're helping each other out. And they're contributing everything they do to a common repository. It has been excellent. And they have given us also a lot of uh, you know feedback regarding the hardware. Do this, don't do that. Uh, we would like this change. We would like this implemented. This is a feature which we want to see. So, and you know, this is a bad thing. Uh, touch panel, change the touch panel, do this, absolutely phenomenal. So it is in many ways, it is as well, it is very much the same, uh, to the same degree, their project as it is ours. And as you may or may not know, uh, the PinePhone is going to be the first uh, Pine64 device with an inbuilt profit margin. Uh, and that profit margin is uh, $10. And uh, these $10, you will be given the option to donate to either our communities, to Pine64 community, or to a selected uh, partner project, so be it Ubuntu. or. I hope you have the option to do more, because I, I'm when I get mine, I'm going to do both. I, I want to do both, and I think probably a lot of people will, honestly. But um, it, it, to me, it just speaks volumes because you guys go out there and, and this is this is by design. You basically say, we're going to give you this hardware. Now we're going to let the open, it, it's so open source the way you handle these things. We're going to give you this hardware base. Now we're going to let the other portions of the community come in and get the software and stuff going so that you're not drowning yourself and trying to do every single aspect of it at once, uh, which could especially with the amount of resources compared to an Apple or a Google is, you know, you've got to work with what you have. And I think this is the best approach I've seen in trying to get a phone to the market that's going to be taken seriously 
in Linux. And so I'm super excited about it. But along those same lines, your approach with communication and launch schedules is also kind of different. Um, your products, how do you guys make sure, let me just ask this, how your products stay on time and how you handle communication to make sure the community knows what's going on at all times and is you know in the know? We always have at least one or two prototype cycles prior to scheduling a production run. Um, and we always have some key developers really take a nice and close look at these devices before they get uh, put into uh, manufacturing. These are usually developers who also have a high degree of engineering knowledge, so hardware um, engineering knowledge. So uh, once they say, we think we're good, that's first when we come out and we talk to the factory and we say, so realistically, when do you think you could deliver it? And when they tell us, you know, a date, we put another two weeks on top of that date and that's how we communicate. And we make sure to keep everybody up to up to date, um, all of uh, our uh, user base always up to date as to what is happening in the production line. I recently made a post uh, uh, updating an earlier post which I made on on shipping and uh, you know as soon as I know what stage of uh, shipping we're at I, I make sure that people know as well so. it's fantastic well and as if that wasn't enough we've got the pine book pro we've got the pine tab which will be coming you also announced something that for the first time ever I have an interest in a smartwatch the pine yes. time uh, can you tell us a little bit about that device and what the, maybe the timeline? I, you don't have to commit to anything. I'm just curious what, what that looks like in terms of where you guys are. This is what we call one of our side projects. So this is something, this is my, this is my uh, pet project. This is something that I pushed for and I have been told for quite some time that, oh, I don't really think, so other people told me, I, I don't think there's really a space for that. I don't really think this is the way to go. But um, we, we did some exploration and um, then I was told, well, I'll put a tweet out, see if there's any interest whatsoever in this thing. And then it turned out that indeed there is a fair bit of interest. Yeah, I remember oh, that yeah. tweet. I remember that tweet and it went viral. It yeah. went completely viral. So we did not, I, I mean, I, I had no clue. I did not expect it uh, to go viral. I, you know, if it got a hundred likes or responses, I, I would be perfectly satisfied and we probably would proceed. Never expected them to be in the thousands. We can start manufacturing the pine time relatively fast and quickly because we got the PCB, we, we got the body from a very reliable vendor. We are going to wait and see what developers think um, about the development kits. They already have the dev kits. They shipped out earlier this month and many key devs have gotten uh, their units already. So uh, we are always very keen to hear what they think about the hardware. They think that something really doesn't work. We're happy to change it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, uh, but then it's really down to how long it's going to take to make uh, software uh, for mm. um, for the pine time. So if it's going to take two months, uh, then you know we could it, purely in theory we could start to uh, mass produce the pine time uh, after the Chinese New Year, so sometime in February, late February. But this is obviously not going to happen. So uh, you know maybe in eight months, nine months, I, I have no clue. This is really, this is when we say that this is a community driven project, it means that we're completely hands off unless they tell us, uh, 
you know, you guys need to change this or that uh, to to uh, to improve the product. Uh, otherwise, we leave it leave it completely with them. And what makes the thing co relatively complicated is that uh, one of these smartwatches it also requires to have a companion app for a phone. So somebody mm -hmm. needs to deal with that. Um, and uh, presumably, not only on not only write a Qt Linux app, but also an Android app. So uh, there needs to be some cooperation between um, uh, developers f developing for the Pine phone, uh, but also s the, somebody from the Android community from, from that development space. So yeah. it may take some time. So I'm, I'm not, uh, not going to tell you a date because it may be soon or maybe uh, quite some time before we see uh, the Pine time uh, ready for, for shipping. I started out by saying I hadn't had an interest in smartwatches and, and I am glad to see that there is momentum behind the sentiment at least, because honestly, I really haven't had an interest, but this is something I could see myself definitely getting. And it isn't even about the, you know, the price or anything like that. It would just be a very interesting object to me, something that I would find interesting. So, yeah. yeah, and these watches are really unique because I was watching um, a lot of people wear them. I've tried them all. I mean, I'm in the industry, so I get my pick if I want to play with an Android or a Apple Watch. I just look at them a lot of times as another device. Yet I have to charge. But there was this interesting um, there was this interesting story that happened when Apple launched their recent watch, and it was a but of course it was a great marketing campaign, but it was also there were a lot of stories where people were coming and talking about how these watches had saved their lives from a lot of the heart rate monitoring and capabilities within the watches had prevented people from uh, having heart attacks without knowing. So they basically got a, their heart rate monitor on their watch was going crazy and saying, you know, that their heart was erratic and they went to the hospital and found out they were about to have a heart attack and different things like this that had happened that I'd never had thought of before that, that these watches and things like these devices can literally save people's lives out there. So it is an important product. I think a lot of us have stayed away from them um, because they generally try to tie you into a specific ecosystem and you know you want to be able to have the choice to of what you want on there and what that watch is monitoring recording doing the apps that are loading and all those things and that's what pine time brings and I noticed that you guys also plan here to have a heart rate monitor built into the device which I was very excited to see yes it does have a heart rate monitor and it has a long battery life, but it is in principle, you know, it's a, you can think of it as a homage to uh, the Pebble in so many ways. Yes. Nice. When, like when we start, because that was, you know, these were fantastic watches. Uh, at least I, I, I think. People are still developing for them. Yeah, even though they've been killed, unfortunately. Yeah, the the, the Rebel Project, and they're doing a yeah. fantastic job um, uh, doing what they do, uh, supporting that community and those watches. Yeah, I think that uh, the the core notion for us of what a smartwatch should be is something that relays information to you and could be can be used for fitness. And as always, when we start with something that we know very little about, we start as simple as possible because if you start simple then there are fewer things you can get wrong so this is a very simple device which translates to the fact that it's also relatively inexpensive 
and everybody can eventually will be able to get a chance to hack around with it and stuff. We're going to be selling dev kits alongside the actual watch. So making more iPhone dev kits would be quite difficult and challenging because they are relatively uh, expensive to make. So there we have to target particular uh, people and developers and and and, um, and so forth and so on. But right. with, with the watch, a development for, kit for, for the watch is just an open watch with with UART or uh, whatever debugger is used on, on this particular Cortex attached to it and which you can attach to your Linux computer. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It, it kind of it makes it because like use the the tweet I think said like twenty five dollars for the actual watch, so you could get you know basically get a a regular watch that you could test your stuff on, on in addition to the actual dev kit. And still, you know, it's fifty dollars. It's like it's a ridiculous deal in that case. If you want to do development, you can get both. Uh, so yeah, yeah I'm I'm excited for the buying time too. I think that we will be able to get the the price lower than that as well. Uh, oh wow! Uh, in in nice. the end, probably closer to the twenty two twenty three dollar uh, mark. So, uh, will you guys be selling a nine hundred ninety nine dollar monitor stand by any chance? Yeah, I think I think that's necessary. <laughs> no, but I actually do have a question. So uh, the yeah. pine the pine phone, yeah. um, I know you guys are, are are you have very specific ideals around pricing and and all of that. If you have an overwhelming response to that, and then there is a so I'm in a position where I I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to be something that's going to replace my current Android phone, right? And, and I, I'm going to get one because I want one and I want to use it. I'm wondering if you had something that was at the like $300 mark, like if you raise that mark, what could you do with that extra budget in terms of the hardware and things like that? Um, just, I'm just curious if that's even crossed your thought process of, you know, a, a slightly up model, just joking about the monitor stand. I don't expect you to put out a thousand dollar smartphone, but <laughs> You know. I think, again, coming back to, you know, uh, our philosophy around design is this, uh, start small yeah, and start simple. So you're asking me if we would use more powerful and expensive components and so forth, could we do a, a better watch? Likelihood is we would probably make a, a, or a, a better phone. Likelihood is we probably would make a worse phone because we would be dealing with much more complex stuff we would have to figure out and deal with. So we learned a lot from the original from uh, this Pine phone and what we're going to do, what we will be able to do uh, two years or three years down the road when we're going to be looking into another phone, which we probably will, uh, we'll, we'll see when the time comes. You know, um, I, I don't have a good answer for you, I'm afraid. It, it sounds like kind of like uh, the same thing you're doing with the Pinebook Pro, like learning from the original Pinebook and mm -hmm. then making iterations and improvements. And the same thing, and like in a future, the same thing could happen with the phone. Yes. Uh, making a a more complex phone invites, you know, the, the Pine phone is already the, the most complex thing we have ever made on mm -hmm. so many levels. Making it even more complex just invites a lot of more, uh, a lot more problems. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm very confident that the phone is going to be a, a, a good um, phone and a good device to getting acquainted with, with Linux and phone and the various projects, uh, which, you know, when it's going to go into uh, mass production in uh, uh, March of 2020, I'm convinced that that's when 
most of the projects you're probably interested in trying out will have really nice and polished images. It's going to be super simple to flash it to the phone and to try it out. It's going to boot from SD card if you don't want to wipe you know, your, uh, your installation. And you'll be able to try all of them. So uh, I, I think by starting small, I think we're doing something really, really, we're going to be able to deliver a really good product, particularly because we're going with, with something that is relatively simple and difficult to mess up. Yeah. You know, this, this could be a problem. Yeah. This could be a problem. You're telling me I can distro hop on my phone. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, in terms of what the future holds for us, I think that we are going to be looking into, you know, further convergence between the uh, devices that we're kind of thinking about or planning in the future. Yeah. So the next generation of SOCs that we're interested in are probably at least 18 months away. So you know, nothing's going to happen within this kind of sphere anytime soon. But in two years, we're probably going to be taking a look at, uh, you know, another Pinebook Pro and another phone. And it wouldn't be, you know, amazing to have the same SOC on a single board computer, a laptop and uh, a phone. It would be pretty cool because it would also bring in all of these communities together and then you could have a single board computer which you, you would attach um, a uh, LCD screen to and then you would have a laptop development kit and you could attach a touchscreen and a USB uh, modem to and you would have a development kit for a phone. So it would kind of all come together really nicely and there's this notion of convergence that I think we will be taking forward in the future given... Nice. Yeah, given also the single board computers a standalone purpose, so they can be your NAS and stuff like that. But also within our uh, within the realm of our sort of ecosystem to give them a a, a purpose. So that that's a really cool them. idea. And I think that you know all the time we talked about convergence and various different uh, companies have brought out the idea of convergence. They're always yeah. talking about having a phone and uh, another hardware where like the, the desktop or the laptop and stuff and having the software be convergent. This is a different approach where the hardware itself would be the convergent aspect. And that sounds like a much more uh, like exciting concept because you have, if you, ha if you can have the same devices have the same hardware and or different devices have the same hardware, you could basically have, you could build an operating system like Ubuntu touch could be built for all of them. And you could even, you know, pick and choose whichever you want. That's awesome. So I'm not saying that it will definitely happen, just so anybody right, listening, yeah. if, if, you, if you think that this is a 100%, it's not. I'm not saying that it will, but what I'm saying is that I'd love to see it happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I think that's a much better approach to convergence anyway, because that sounds more exciting, really. Yeah. So, Lucas, thank you so much for the work you and Pine64 team do. Uh, if it's not apparent, we are huge fans uh, so please take that back to Pine64 team. Though We are huge fans of what you're doing. We're huge fans of what you're bringing to the market. And the fact that you're doing it in such a way that is, you know, it's community driven. And it's also respectful of the fact that not everybody has $1,000 for new devices or several thousand dollars for new devices. Or and the ability or monitor stands and for the ability to, for people to be able to uh, experience this, get into it, help with the development, get involved, hack around with these devices, 
You're also helping with the potential e-waste and things. You're looking at ways that you could, you know, upgrade these machines so people aren't throwing these, you know, rare materials that make these components initially into the garbage. There's just so many things that you guys are thinking about, so many layers to Pine64. We love the work that you're doing. We can't wait to have you back when we have these devices in our hands so that we can uh, talk about them. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having, having me on. This has been amazing. Cheers, guys. Yeah, thank you. So in the news this week, um, there is a really interesting story, and I, I want to rally the community around this cause here. There's nothing more empowering, in my opinion, than being able to stand up to a bunch of bullies, uh, especially when those bullies are patent trolls. And so a few weeks back, we covered the new story of Rothschild patent imaging, which was suing Gnome and specifically going after Shotwell for a ridiculous patent. Now, Rothschild appears to be a company that sole purpose is to just sue other companies with their portfolio of patents. They don't actually produce anything from what you can see on their website. They purely are a company that goes up and buys patents that expire and then goes after companies that use anything in their patent portfolio. And according to gnome.org, Rothschild said they would settle for a, in this case, they're going after Shotwell for a, um, I don't know, I, I think it's something where if you plug in a device and the software tells you that the device is plugged in like an external device, like you plug into a camera, and then Shotwell would say, hey, here's your camera, you wanna pull your photos off of it. Yeah. That, that's what they patented, basically something that has been around, they didn't invent it, uh, everybody uses it, but somehow in our silly patent system, we allowed something like this to be patented uh, in such a way that it could be used, of course, against any software out there. Now, Gnome had the opportunity, uh, according to their blog, to say, okay, we'll settle. We'll pay five figures. A uh, five-figure amount is all they say, a large five-figure amount, and Gnome could continue to use this silly patent and basically settle and move on. But to me... Uh, and they talk about this in their blog, the Gnome Foundation basically said, we may have the ability to fight this financially. Now, Gnome Foundation's not rich by any means. This isn't a Microsoft. This isn't uh, even the Samsung or any other company with uh, substantial amounts of money, but they are better off than a lot of projects. And they could have just paid the figure and moved on, but they realized that this is going to set a precedent about what is going to happen in open source from this day forward. Mm -hmm. And so they chose to stand their ground and fight this. And this is no easy thing because these companies, their sole purpose in a lot of cases is to have very, you know, very good lawyers that just sit there and find ways to make this process as painful as possible so that either A, you pay them, which is their ultimate goal, um, or B, you go under, and if you try to fight them, right, you're going to just spend so many resources that they're going to make it as painful as humanly possible. So I asked when this case originally came out, I was tweeting, I know several others did as well, if Gnome Foundation would open up and allow the community to get involved to help fund some of these costs, because legal fees are extraordinarily expensive, and they've done just that. So they have opened up a page, and I hope that anybody who is capable of financially donating to help cover these funds does so. Uh, there are so many amazing people who already have, I think they're at least three fourths of the way to their goal 
uh, which isn't a large sum of money anyways. And that was just in this last week. So they are getting there. But if you have a chance to give anything, please do so. If you do not have the ability to give anything financially, uh, please go out there and just tweet about this, go on social media platform, talk about it, get others uh, aware of what's happening. Because in these court cases, when I say it sets a precedent, what happens is other court cases from here on out, from all the other companies that are patent trolls out there, will use this in their court case if, let's say, this company wins to say, here's an example we can go to from the courts to show this case and they ruled in favor of said patent troll and therefore, you know, in this case follows very similar parameters and you should rule in favor of us as well. If they lose, the same thing's true. We need them to lose. We need Which them to lose likely really bad. Like the main thing is yeah. that most of the time these patent trolls, what they do is just scare you into the financial strain of not battling it. Even if you, they know that you have the, the upper hand in the actual court case, they put the level of like how much you can avoid the court case a much smaller amount. So it makes more sense financially to do it that way so that their precedents are not set. So gnome mm -hmm. gnome going to doing this makes it uh, sets up a, a position to make a precedent so that this particular patent could even be thrown out because of how worthless it, it is because like, mm -hmm. yes, it is, it is a basically a worthless patent, which is mostly all software patents are, but the, the, this particular one is if so ridiculous that it applies to basically any device that you connect to anything and pull an image from. Like, mm -hmm. it's just a ridiculous patent that the fact that it even exists is, is a, a sad state of our patent system that it even could be possible. Uh, but this mm -hmm. is something that we, you know, it's not just a gnome thing. It's not just a Shotwell thing. It's the, you know, this would be beneficial to all of the community, all the open source community to be a part of in some way, whether you, you know, donate yourself or you uh, just help promote the information, let people know that this is happening because it is a fundamental thing that is going to be beneficial to everybody. And it's not just a defense lawsuit. They have like a three tiered thing that they filed for. One of the things is a counterclaim basically to sue this Rothschild uh, patent troll, uh, you know, apparent patent troll thing to battle them back to like, so they are in some sort damaged in, in a way that whether they're like, they can't do it as easily in the future. And to, to point mm -hmm. out that, that what they're doing is against the, like the fair trade systems and stuff. So this is a really important uh, case that they're doing. And I'm happy that they are taking it on and that they are allowing the community to be a part of it in the way of, you know, contributing to making it happen. Mm -hmm. And to, just to take it further from what Ryan said about this is a very important case for future um, things. A question that people might be asking is, wow, they're taking on Shotwell. That's not very big. Why don't they take on Apple? Apple must have millions of more devices that they can sue people for. The answer is, they would lose against Apple and Huawei and Samsung and any of the other large phone manufacturers where this patent still applies. You plug your phone into a computer and it says to you, oh, would you like to do something? They don't do it against those guys because they know they'll lose. They'll pick on someone little like Shotwell, win the case, and then can go ahead and try and take on Samsung and the others by going, look, we've got precedent here. We demolished this small little company. So, yeah, we've got to do everything in our power to stop them because this is just shocking. 
And yeah. just so people know, Destination Linux Network has donated to this project. Uh, I have also, and Noah and others uh, within the, the, the creator's circle have also matched that donation and are doing our part as well. So if you've supported this show, maybe you don't have the finances at this time, just know that uh, we're doing our part to try to help. Um, but if you can't financially support, again, please go to social media um, because that would help tremendously, not only hopefully embarrass this company, although if you do that for a living, you probably uh, have no ability to be embarrassed, but get the word out to get people who do have uh, the ability to potentially help uh, Gnome out in this case, uh, get the money that they need to fight this. And my guess is this may come around again. These cases tend to be spread out over long periods of time. So Gnome asked for a very small amount of money with this type of case. Uh, so I want, uh, I'm really hoping we can help them reach that goal and they're very close to it, but it may come about that Gnome, you know, six months later or a year later needs more to fight this case. And then we'll rally about it again to do it because we do not need this in open source. This is the type of thing that will destroy small creators and small developers. Mm -hmm. And it, if you think this patent is ridiculous, believe me, I'm sure they probably have 10,000 other ones that are equally as stupid, if not worse. So it's just, this is what they're, they're testing the waters here. And we need to show them that this is not the place to mess with. Go, go kick rocks somewhere else. News this week out of Canonical that there is a new Ubuntu desktop director. So those of you who know Ubuntu, or maybe you don't, Will Cook was the director from 2014 and has been contributing since 2005. And he has done an amazing job in that time. I think a lot of us owe a lot of smooth desktop experiences and just some of the polish and, and wonderful things that we've seen out of Ubuntu in the last five years. Like all of us can recognize how far yes. it's come in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. So he, no small feat on his part. Uh, he has found other greener pastures. And um, so luckily, though, Canonical had in-house Martin Wimpress, who as Well, we're know, not supposed to say his name on this podcast. <laughs> I just invoked it right there. Oh, if man. I say it three okay. times, will he show up? Like, will he come through? That's the what I hear happens. And he, he shows up with a <laughs> manual and tells you to read it. <laughs> he'll be dressed in green you know yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so funny enough martin so if you don't know he's he's um headed up the mate ubuntu mate project and he the mate project has contributed so much to ubuntu and all of the other flavors of ubuntu so if you look at the 1910 release he did a yeah. lot with the, the 435 nvidia drivers and the, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that that team does in terms of polish so Martin's already a huge champion. And funny enough, I found out last night that he actually started on the desktop team before he got mm -hmm. pulled into the snaps um, effort. So when they said they'd made some mention of him returning to his roots and I wasn't quite sure what that was. And uh, Alan Pope had, had said, no, that's, that's how he started. That was his area of interest. So, uh, you know, we all know who Martin is. I, I assume everyone who's listening to this knows who Martin is. If you don't, he's just, He's just one of those guys that is absolutely 100% dedicated to desktop Linux. He does everything he can do to make it as straightforward and simple for people to use. He builds custom images for lots of different types of hardware. Mm. He supports it, it. Truly, he is one of those stalwart people who just wants to see the advancement of the desktop. So to hear that he is now in this position is very exciting to me as an Ubuntu user. 
obviously Ubuntu, Kubuntu, and all of the flavors. But I think in general, this is going to be a positive step for desktop Linux, period. Yep. Yeah. He's also a really good at uh, trolling Ryan, which is fantastic. Whoa. Uh, We're not supposed yeah. to bring that up. <laughs> we need to bring you back on the show just to do that again. Exactly. Well, funny enough, I reached out to Martin and I said, listen, I know you've got this fancy title now and you're all up in the clouds, <laughs> but would you still fancy coming on this show and uh, talking to us about your new position? And uh, Martin was more than willing to. So we're going to let the dust settle a little bit, let him get uh, into place for a few weeks. But we're going to hopefully have Martin on in the near future because he's always a fantastic guest always mm -hmm. pulls in so many people uh, love uh, the interviews with Martin that we've had in the past. So go check those out to get your fill now, but we'll be having him on the show in the future to talk about all the things uh, that he has in, in plan for uh, with Ubuntu in this position. So Ryan, when you do have him on, what's your wish list for him? Cause I'm sure there is one. Well, I have a huge wish list. Uh, the, the first thing that I want Martin to do is get rid of the manual. Nobody reads them. What is the point of a manual, Martin? Um, no, uh, I have a few things out there. In fact, we had a tweet uh, uh, exchange that was going on about some of the um, you know, misses that happened from uh, the standpoint of AMD uh, GPUs and some of the support there. And, and the miss was they didn't get the patch in, in time in the mess Mesa for uh, before Ubuntu's latest free. So the latest 5700 XT won't work in Ubuntu right now and things like that. So I I'm hoping that there are, is some things there that um, I can whisper or uh, we can find some solutions for, because it's not just an AMD thing. I think when Intel comes out with their GPUs, they're going to be releasing in the Mesa drivers as well uh, as they've traditionally done to this point. So making sure we have a way to quickly get those, that hardware enabled uh, and still keep that nice LTS, you know, comfort that people have of yeah. stability and all of that in place would be something I would love for them to explore outside of NVIDIA's realm um, mm -hmm. more. So that, that would be something I would go and uh, definitely getting rid of the manual. Yeah. Yeah. The well, manual. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think you're going to be okay on that because whenever I've had discussions with Martin and read some of his Twitter feeds, he's definitely a technology orientated guy and Absolutely. he will get the latest gadgets and he will get the latest graphics card and he will get the latest processor and do whatever it is he needs to do. So, but also I think he's got that stability whereby he can't just go, okay, boys, let's get on top of this stallion and go galloping off into the, in, into the sunset. We'll get everything fixed. He knows that Ubuntu has still got to have that rock solid base. So right. he'll have that nice medium of bringing stuff along, maybe a little bit quicker, but making sure that that base is still there, that everybody knows and loves and why they, a lot of people turn to Ubuntu. Well, our community too, send us your comments. What are some of the things, uh, maybe you can send us your wish list as well as some of the things you may want to see. And obviously, you know, I don't expect he's going to go in that position and change everything. And, you know, um, I, I think... You, well, not with that Ubuntu, attitude. <laughs> I think Ubuntu has a, a longstanding record uh, and does well with 
with where the direction that it's been going in so many ways. So with that, I don't expect there's going to be mass changes, but certainly anytime you have a new person taking charge, you know, they're going to have a different vision. And um, I'm sure he would be interested in knowing what the wish list is out there. Um, not that he will be a genie and grant all those wishes, but it, you know, be a good opportunity to send in those questions that you may want us to ask Martin when he does come on the show in the future. Yep. So software spotlight this week, we're going to be having a look at, Pie hole. Now, this is not something that um, I am intimately uh, knowledgeable of, but if you're looking for an amazing project for your Raspberry Pi and want to speed up your internet and block ads and just all those other nasties that are out there, look no further than the Pie Hole. Um, now, I'm thinking that, Ryan, you've probably already dealt with this and can give us some really good details about why it's a good thing to try and set up on your on your home networks yeah i mean sitting on the other side of michael is a little raspberry pi 4 device that is running pi hole on it that i've set up and it's just it's one of those projects that i had heard about people had talked about it and for whatever reason i was off doing whatever other project i had with raspberry pis and i just never got around to it and then I installed it, and now I don't know how I've lived without it this long. <laughs> I am so frustrated it took me this long to get one of these devices set up. I did do a video on it out there on the DOS Geek channel on YouTube, so go check that out uh, if you want to know how to get it set up. But honestly, it's so simple. It's so easy to do, and it's it's just a fun project that's, that you're going to get working with very there's, – there's none of this – you know, spending eight hours trying to diagnose all of this advanced terminal commands and all of these things. It's just, it's so simple. It's literally one command you type in that mm -hmm. sets the whole thing up and then you get a nice, beautiful web GUI console to sit there and, and mess with. So um, mm -hmm. it, it's just a beautiful project. It's so well done. And even uh, when I sent the video out, Popey hit tweeted, to also check out firebog.net so you can add additional filters mm -hmm. if you want into the tool, which was a great tip out there to basically further improve your block lists and things. But um, is anybody else here use Pi-hole? Oh my goodness. So, I mean, his video was okay. I mean, you go watch it if you want. Well, thanks a lot, Eric. <laughs> no, no. It was actually, it was great because you gave, you gave me the, the, so I've had the Raspberry Pi 2B in my closet for years. And I've used it a couple times for different projects and it was fine. I, I put some network-based server kind of stuff on it usually. And so when this came up and I saw your video, I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And I, like you, I was like, why haven't I known about this? Right. It, it's incredible. So, I mean, so you understand, and I'm not going to go into belabor the detail, but basically the magic of this is it's stopping all of this garbage traffic from ever being downloaded in the first place because it's blocking the DNS queries and the requests from coming through. So my own network, I've only got about seven or eight devices. So we're not talking a lot of, a lot of machines here. 55,000 requests in 24 hours, 29,000 of them were blocked. Yeah. That's how much garbage yeah. chatter is happening. It's my Roku, it's my Android devices. Everything wants to phone home. Everything wants to phone home. And you won't believe if you do this project, how much chatter is on your network it's it's shocking well that was one of the things i was going to ask because ryan has always been a great proponent of security and safety and mind your own business stop asking me questions via these backdoor methods so have you been able to find out ryan 
we all know that if you want to block Google, how you go ahead and do it. But I think one of the one of the shocking things that I found about, especially when I was on Windows 10, was you go out there and you block as best you can Microsoft telemetry. But then there's 54 other companies with a different name that you didn't know worked for Microsoft, but they are still gathering all of that telemetry. So has this opened your eyes further to how they're harvesting all this information from you? I, I will tell you, and I, I know that um, I, I wish Noah was kind of here um, because this, me and him have had this battle back and forth, although I think he's kind of settled into both our horrible options, which he's not wrong there. But my Android device was the one that in my home that I found just pinging nonstop. And wow. I use the iPhone as my primary device. So most of my important things is on an iPhone. Um, now there were a couple calls to Apple on there and I literally mean a couple calls to Apple on there, but by comparison, that Android phone was dinging that pie hole nonstop. So there are probably applications and things that, and, and I don't have a lot on that device, which is surprising mm-hmm. to me. Um, so yes, I think there, there was also, um, my work computer, for instance, which uses Microsoft, it was pinging the pie hole quite a bit uh, for uh, information going back. I thought that was interesting. I didn't realize how often Microsoft is sending that information back and forth. I thought maybe it would be, you know, in the middle of the night, a couple times they pink. Now it's it's kind of a constant thing that's going on within my house. These these ads that are blocking and it's shocking. Yeah, it it opened my eyes that it's as bad as I thought it was, and probably in some cases even worse. Mm-hmm. Right. So you you guys are talking about doing this on a on a, on a Raspberry Pi. Um, is this something that an old ten year old laptop could be put to use to? Um, is that something that you could? I mean, I've got absolutely Dell thing in here, and I'm sure I could just hook it up, switch it on, and then run everything through that instead. So using an old outdated um, laptop will work just as good. Yeah. Sure would. Yep. Absolutely. The Bihole supports like all kinds of different hardware and it also doesn't require that much hardware to do it. So you could get the, you could use the Pihole to like a really old Raspberry Pi would even work. Like the, maybe not the Model A, but like definitely the Model B. Gosh, I thought it said zero up, but you'd have to check the website to see what the hardware requirement is on it, well, but it, the it's two. pretty light. Yeah, I mean, the two runs, I mean, I was worried that because this was something maybe for a, a newer model, and I mean, it, it runs fantastic. When I look at the load and the memory usage, it's very, very low. So, I mean, it's the, the requirement in terms of the amount of overhead it has is very, very low. Yep. Nice. It's just a fantastic project. So definitely go check it out. And the tip and trick this week is actually a service that I found that I've been using for a little while. I've, I, there's a, if you've never heard of RSS feeds, they're a way for you to um, get notifications on various different things about a website. So, for example, you go to a news site and you go to that site to get see if there's anything new or that's interesting to you. And you go to that site, go to the category, and you're like, okay, that didn't work. There's nothing in there I, I want to see because uh, you know you've already seen it. They didn't update it in that period of time. And then you apply that about you know a hundred times for different websites, and it's just a you know it's just a massive annoyance. With RSS feeds, you can pull the data automatically to an RSS reader, and you just go to that reader, and it'll tell you here's everything that's happened since you last checked it and you can see if you're interested in whatever there's and you can also like customize based on certain websites where they'll have RSS feeds for different categories and 
you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what, like, one of the reasons RSS is such a fundamental importance that it's super useful. But sometimes RSS feeds are not provided by a particular website. Uh, there's a service called FeedFry, and it's feedfry.com. And it is a really cool service that you can take a URL, put it into their their service, and it will create an RSS feed based on the HTML of that page. And it will also like give you multiple different styles of like elements based on the page because it doesn't really know exactly what you want from that page, but it will be, do its best guess. And typically for me, like the number one or two uh, option that they they pick is what I'm actually wanted. But they'll even have sometimes where they'll have like up to 10 different options you can choose. Like this is the one I wanted from this page. And every single time that they update it, they typically update it in a dynamic way on the server side, which makes the HTML the con- a consistent output so that the, the feed system is able to automatically detect, oh, this is a new thing based on here. So it will basically create a RSS feed where there wasn't one before. And it is... It is it's, it's saved me so much time and hassle that I think if you if you have any interest in RSS feeds or you already have it and you you know want to subscribe to something that you couldn't have an RSS feed for, this is definitely the solution for it because I I've been using it for a while and I love it. So you could go to a website just uh, and and you use this. You don't have to have a special RSS feed reader or anything along those lines. You basically go to the site. You can put in I want tech news from this particular website. And I want it to be updated regular on a regular basis and grab that feed, bookmark it in Firefox. And anytime you go there, it's going to have that updated feed for just the stuff you want, which is yeah, really cool. That's true, nice. too. However, I would still suggest get an RSS reader because there's a lot of them. And it just it makes it a lot easier to have an organization because it essentially acts like a inbox for the Internet. So like instead of like an email, you're basically getting an email every time there's something that's new, but not through email, through the RSS system. And these readers are a lot more, a lot, you, you can do filtering on readers and you can do, uh, you can label things and categorize things and that kind of thing. So if you only want to do it for a, a couple or here and there, you can just bookmark those things. But if you want to like really get into RSS feeds, definitely suggest a reader for that. I just went out and took a look at FeedFry and it took me literally 30 seconds to set up a web page. It's that fast. You just put in the URL. It shows you a preview of what you would see in your feed. If you like it, you create it. And that, that's, that's a neat tool. Yeah. Very easy. So a huge thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it, Destination Linux. And we love our patrons. So we just want to give a special shout out for all of your support. We do a live show for our patrons, so you can come and join us if you want to be a part of the show. In Eric's case, he gets to uh, be a part of the show literally, like be a host in the show. <laughs> um, and you can join for just $1, and that's darn near free, as we like to say. And we also have several new tiers with additional perks to check out. And by the way, those perks are now live on the website. So if you go to destinationlinux.org, uh, and you go to the support section. Is that where it's at, yeah, Michael? Yeah, so support Under the show support. section, there's a uh, DL producers page. Yep. So those of you who have uh, taken part of those new tiers, uh, your names are now listed out there. Uh, just first name and the first initial of your last name. Or if you're using um, you know, a username, uh, that's listed out there. But that's just an additional way of us to let you know. Thank you for continuing to support the show and the work that we do here. And if you want to change what it says, you can let us know about that as well. Speaking of support, 
Become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining the forums. There's also a Mumble server, Discord. Uh, what am I forgetting? There's like all kinds of great stuff out there. If you have not gone to the website, please do go check it out. Everything's linked there. Also linked there is Linux for Everyone, DOS Geek, This Week in Linux, Ask Noah Show, Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss Gaming, and new content like <clears throat> DLN Extend, nice. which I, I would like you to please just check it out. And I'd like to hear your feedback on it. Um, I, li- I think we're doing a great job. Let me just say it myself. My, I've been, can you tell I've been spending too much time with Michael lately? I was about to say. Like you, that's, <laughs> too much experience there. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And also, very, very interesting and exciting. A DLN game night is coming up. Uh, it's in the works. Uh, there's going to be folks from all the different shows participating. We're going to try to stretch it out over different time zones. So folks in Europe can start when it makes sense for them. And then the folks in America will come in and sort of step across the time zones and we'll just have a a fantastic long night of gaming. Excellent. So please get back to us and let us know what you think or you have any burning questions. Um, As usual, you can email us at comments at destinationlinux.org. And that's just one of the ways that we've got listed up there. You can come to our Telegram group, which is an awesome place with wonderful people that we talk to on a daily basis. You've got Discord and Discourse and Twitter and Mastodon. And I could keep going on for hours because Michael just keeps coming up with these wonderful ways that (laughs) you can communicate with us. Wait, I updated the contact page recently. There's even more now. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. And that's available at destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. And as you've seen from this show, a very simple brief email from you mentioning the subjects and that's it. We're away. We're off giving our opinions and, and finding out. And then that then will lead on to DLN Extend, who will be able to give their opinions. So there's even more shows that you can write in about. So keep them coming. It really is an enjoyable part of our Destination Linux show. And also, don't forget to join the Mumble server. We have uh, the Mumble server. You can chat with the community. You can chat with us. Various different gaming sessions you can do if you want to. And also, we have a lot of content because it doesn't stop here. You can you can go to the Destination Linux network website to find all the content. But if you'd like to, you can go to individually sh- our, our own content. We're going to for example, with Ryan, you can go to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can have uh, youtube.com slash Zebedee Boss, where you can find Zeb playing uh, games on his Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel. And you can also find my content at touchdigital.com, where I do a weekly in-depth uh, week, uh, Linux Good News podcast called This Week in Linux. You can fi- check out uh, Noah's content at asknoahshow.com, where he does a weekly talk radio show at, on 6 p.m., uh, at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. And you can check out Eric's new content by going to destinationlinux.network. You can go to the shows and go to DLN Extend or go to dlnextend.com. So check out uh, Eric and Nate's new show. It's I, I've listened to it, a per, you know, and I and I agree with Eric that it is a fantastic show, and he has learned a lot from me. So good show. Oh wow, wow, <laughs> unbelievable! Yeah, yeah. Well, you got the great show part right. <laughs> All right, so everybody have a fantastic week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. Bye-bye.